You're listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Now here's Pastor Sean. We start a new series this morning, not just with Kids Day, but we're starting a series through the Minor Prophets. We're going to do one week uh, for each book. There's 12 books, starting with Hosea and running all the way to Malachi. And uh, the prophets are always an unusual kind of thing. You know, there were some weird dudes walking around. Uh, they just... They just were odd. God told them to do some really odd things. Um, there was one guy by the name of Isaiah that God said, yeah, I want you to walk around without any clothes on for three years, and uh, you're going to be a testimony to all of Egypt, and I want you to take your shoes off, and you're a testimony to all of Egypt that, hey, you're going to be destitute, and you're going to be homeless, and you're going to wander around. There was another guy by the name of Ezekiel that uh, I'm convinced he would have been really pumped he had, had he had some Legos to play with. God told him, no joke, uh, you can look it up. Ezekiel, God said, okay, I want you to make basically this whole battle scene, all right? Kids, how many of you ever played with Legos or Lincoln Logs at home or Playmobil? Yeah, older dads, you are welcome to join in that too, right? You still have them. Uh, I don't have my building blocks from when I was a kid. I have all my Matchbox cars, so, you know, I just keep them. And uh, you probably are doing that too, Dad, but no joke. God said, okay, here's the deal. I want you to take a brick, not a Lego brick, but a brick brick, a real brick, and I want you to write the name of Jerusalem on it, and I want you to set it down on the ground, and I want you to pretend, and I want you to build like this whole fort battle scene going on. I want you to build some armies, have some encampments around the city of Jerusalem, and I want you to, to build some, um, what do you call the things, the battering rams that, you know, they're gonna knock the city walls down. I want you to build a, a wall that's gonna come and attack. I want you to have the armies, and, and I want you to be there for people to see. Now here's the really weird part, you know. How cool is that for God to say, okay, your job this week is to build a Lego, Lego Scene. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? He would have been, you know, incredible. He, he didn't have that advantage, so he used some other things. But here's the weird part. God said, yeah, now that you've done that, I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days. What? 300? Yeah, I want you to lay right next to that, and on your left, not your right, your left side for 390 days, and that's a day for a year, and I want you to basically suffer and pay the price that Israel is going to eventually pay for all of those years. That's weird. And then he says, and after that, I want you to turn over for 40 days, and I want you to lay on your right side for specifically for 40 days. Sean, what is up with that? I know, right? It's crazy. That's what these prophets did. God told them strange things. Here, here is what's going on. He was a living model for the Jewish people were to see the judgment that was coming to them. It's kind of like a parable or like, you know, a story that Jesus told that was acted out in front of them. And so think about this way. So there's the weird guy at the end of the road building this big scene, you know, and he's laying down every day. How long? Uh, probably a lot of the day. I don't know if he did an eight-hour shift. I don't know how that worked, honestly. I mean, he had to at least get up and go to the bathroom, we presume, right? You can't stay there for a year. But every day, he was laying down on his left side. And so, you know, you send your kid off to school, and the first day they go by, oh, cool scene, you know? Like, wow. Next day, he's laying on there, laying down. Oh, okay, third day, fourth day, fifth day. You know, after about three weeks, you as mom and dad are like, what is that weird guy doing? Like, kids, I don't want you walking by the house. And somewhere along the way, they asked him, like, 
yo, Ezekiel, what are you doing, man? Like, this is weird. Have you got a screw loose? And he would say, oh, yeah, let me tell you what. God's going to judge Jerusalem. If we don't get our act together, this is coming. It was there to get everybody's attention. They were weird for attention, not for their sake, but to speak a message to God. And that's what all the prophets in the Old Testament were about. It's not so much that they were telling the future, although it did sometimes, if not often, involve that. They were there really conveying a message to God and to God's people. And consequently, they did some strange things. Well, this morning is an even, maybe even a little bit harder thing. It's one thing to play with Legos in the sand and lay around all day. But God came to a guy by the name of Hosea, and that's the first of the minor prophets. By the way, the minor prophets are not minor in that they're not important. They just didn't write as much. They didn't write as much as Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah. They're absolutely very important. And so, but we're going to, and they're much smaller books. We're just going to kind of take a week at each one to kind of give you a bird's eye view of them. But God came to Hosea and said, Hosea, here's the deal. You're not married. I want you to get married. And I want you to marry a particular kind of woman. Uh, I want you to marry not a woman that you would be excited to bring home to mom and dad. I want you to actually marry a woman who is very promiscuous. Um, A woman who might, we might today would have called her a prostitute. I want you to go marry her. I want her to be your wife. I want you to love her, and I want you to create a life together with her. And so uh, Hosea did that. The Bible says he goes and he take, uh, meets a woman by the name of Gomer, and they get married, and they have three kids. And their three kids, here's the crazy part. They were a picture of what was going on with Israel. He named one of his kids No Mercy. Some of you dads are like, yeah, that's the name I want to give my kid, you know, no mercy in this house. Uh, No, that's not a good thing. There needs to be some mercy. Uh, The next one he named, uh, the third one he named, not my people. Disown them. Their own kids, own kids carried those names as a testimony that God was angry at the people of Israel. Sean, that's really strange. Yeah, it really is. How would you like to say, yeah, I'm going to go marry a woman, and I know she's going to cheat on me for sure. I know she's going to walk out on me. I know that she's going to turn her back on me and my whole relationship. And God said, go and do that. So this morning, as we just, we don't have time to look at the entire book of Hosea, we're going to kind of parallel two tracks You see, what God is trying to do in Hosea's life by doing this is he wants Israel to understand the depth of what they are doing to him. God is the the innocent husband, if you will. By the way, in a marriage, there's husband and wife. There's never anyone fully innocent there in whatever fights or things that are going on. There's always complications. But God is the fully innocent party and he wants Israel to understand what their life, what, their, what it is doing to the relationship that they have with God. And so be, in order to them to kind of get it, he lifts up Hosea and his family, we would say today, of dysfunction before all of Israel to get their attention. So we're going to follow two tracks. We're going to see what God what our life means together before God when we turn our back on God, when we are unfaithful to God. 
And I want us to also consider, there's a lot in here to learn about even just relationships between husbands and wives and what God calls for in the middle of that. And we're going to see that forgiveness and love is always possible in the middle of a relationship no matter what. So I'm, I'm, I'm calling this morning's message that the faithfulness of God despite or in spite of our unfaithfulness. Hosea is an incredible story of the graciousness, the forgiveness, and the faithfulness of God. And it's an amazing story of reconciliation that God has worked in our life when we have absolutely blown it and ruined it. So first thing I want you to recognize this morning is that, um, that God makes a relationship with us. He commits to us knowing full well what we are going to do in life and who we are and what we've done in our past and what we're going to do in our future. Look what he says in Hosea chapter 1. He says this, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And verse 3 continues and says he obeys God. We don't get the sense he asks questions like, God, did I hear you straight? God, my parents aren't going to be happy with this. God, what are you talking about? He goes and he obeys God. You see, Hosea is a picture of God in this story. You and I stand in the shoes of Gomer. We're the ones who who have committed adultery on God. We're the ones who have turned our back on God. We're the ones who have been unfaithful to God. And yet God, knowing full well who we were in our past, knowing full well who we are going to be in the future, He still commits Himself not just to rescue us and save us from our sin, but to commit Himself to us in a marriage relationship, if you will. In the New Testament, we know that the Bible says that that uh, we are, Jesus is the bridegroom, the, the groom, we are the bride, and that he marries himself, if you will, to the church. There is such a close relationship between us and God and between us and Jesus that the Bible uses a picture of the very closest relationship on this earth, and that's between a husband and a wife. The closest relationship on this planet are not best friends. It's not father and mother to kids or father and mother to their parents. It's not, uh, it's not any other relationship between, except between a husband and wife. And God's telling us that, guys, when I saved you, when I chose you, when I reached down and pulled you out of the sin and out of the muck and the mire, out of your life of promiscuity, out of your life of whatever you were doing, I want you to realize that I didn't just save you and rescue you and just send you away. I married you. God doesn't treat us like a stray animal, if you will, uh, you know, an animal that we're having mercy on, who, who needs rescuing, that's hungry and maybe filled with ticks and fleas or whatever. He says, I am rescuing you and I'm going to commit myself to you, heart and soul to you, just like a husband would. And I know full well where you've been and I know full well what your life is going to be the rest of your life. I don't know about you, but that's crazy. How many of us in this room would get married to somebody knowing, knowing full well that they would betray us, turn their back on us, and all of the things that would come and go along with that? We probably wouldn't. We would probably turn and be like, yeah, I think I need to go to door number two or three or four and turn, you know, I think I need a different option here. God in His incredible faithfulness committed to you and me when we were still in the middle of our sin. Look how the Bible describes it in chapter 4, verse 1. 
God gets plain with them and explains to them. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. I got a problem with you, we would say. <laughs> he would say today, I got a problem. He says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. You're not faithful. You're unfaithful. There's no real love. No knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. And then he goes on in verse 3 to tell how all of the things that they're doing wrong is actually impacting the environment around them and how because of it God's blessing is not even not on their lives but it's not even on the, the land and the fields and the rivers and the birds and all of that. You see, God, when he looks at us, he says, I see your sin. I see the lying and the stealing. I see the adulteries. I see how you treat one another. Notice that most of those sins are not sins that we directly commit against God. They're actually sins that we commit against one another. He says, I see what you're doing. And because you're disobeying me, you're unfaithful to me, and you're doing wrong toward everybody else. So the first thing I want you and I to realize this morning is, is that, that God says, I'm still committing to you, not because you're awesome, not because you're absolutely amazing, not because you're perfect and wonderful. I'm committing to you because of purely of my faithfulness, even in the middle of your unfaithfulness. In the middle of that. Advice I would give to young couples before you get married, get over the, not the romanticism and the love so much, Get over the naivety and the idealism really quickly. The person you're marrying is imperfect. They're going to, you're going to have a very imperfect life. The person you're in love with is going to hurt you. There are going to be challenges along the way. There are going to be serious difficulties along the way. And when you commit to them, you're committing to walk through all of that together. There is a practical lesson for us in this life, but the bigger lesson that God is telling us is we need to be willing to realize that God is so faithful in His graciousness to us that in order for us to get that, we've got to understand the depth of our unfaithfulness. Think about it this way. It's difficult for us as people to accept just when we're really, when we're really wrong and messed up. We don't want to do that. And it, and it can be a challenge for us to... to to, to hear those things, to, to walk down that road. And what God is trying to do is to help us to realize the impact of our actions and to realize the destruction of that. But here's the thing, if we aren't willing to hear it, to receive it, to accept it, to kind of wade in and let God poke in to our hearts to see how messed up we are, if we're not willing to do that, then we're not really willing to see the glory of God and to know Him and all of His wonder. You see, to understand His salvation and His love is to, by, at the same time, to understand our messed upness. That's a good theology word I just made up. That just how messed up we really are. To understand more of His grace, we actually have to understand more of our mess. If we're not willing to really accept that at all, then God's like, I got nothing for you. So you really can't know Jesus and experience His love and forgiveness and His salvation and His redemption. You can't experience Him removing the shame of any of your stuff in the past if you don't acknowledge it. And that really comes when we surrender our life to Jesus the first time. But then the rest of our life is a progressive, not so much of God. It's not that we're wallowing in it and God just telling us how bad we are. 
But it's really for us to grow more in understanding His grace and His forgiveness and how amazing that He is. We got to understand Him more and more how messed up we are and we can deal with it and keep our mind in one piece and not come apart because we realize that God forgives us and He loves us in the middle of all of that in spite of those realities. I was, uh, went fishing with uh, my two sons yesterday and uh, the ladies were going shopping. Um, that's not my thing. So uh, we went fishing. Let's just say I fished enough that I have no desire to go fishing today whatsoever. You can invite me and I'm staying home, all right? You know, I fished till I dropped kind of thing or till my kids dropped. And uh, we had only been fishing an hour or so and all of a sudden, and I'm in the middle, picture th three guys in a canoe, okay? Pretty big canoe, it's almost 18 foot canoe, but nonetheless, and I'm the middle guy. And I started out in life with my kids being the dad and steering and doing the heavy lifting, but now it's their turn, right? I get to ride in the middle and you know, kick my feet up and have my coffee or whatever. Not quite so much like that. I just want them to know how to paddle and I can rest. But obviously I have no business being in the middle of the canoe because uh, about an hour in, all of a sudden I will go to cast and I felt like I had hit a tree with my rod. And I look over and I see Titus, who's in the front seat of the canoe, the bow, just kind of turned to me and I see the hook right here of the big lure right beside his face. And I go, oh my goodness, I just hooked his eye. Thankfully I didn't. Uh, there wasn't much blood involved, or at least not external blood, but when he turned around, I must have hit him hard enough right at the corner of his eye. Is there an artery the medical people in the world? Isn't there? You can like take your pulse right here. You know, there's like some big honking vein artery things blowing right through here, and I broke that sucker right in one piece because it just bulged right out. I mean, like quarter of an inch, and just I thought, oh, that's going to be a nice goose egg. And, uh, you know, immediately the blood starts spilling in around his eye and turning red and all of that. I felt horrible. felt awful. New rule, dad's not allowed in the middle of the boat. Titus has fished for years in the middle of the boat, and he never did that to either one of us. So he's obviously better than me. So um, no more free rides. So here's the thing. I did not want to look and see all the damage that I did. It was humbling. I felt bad as a dad. The last thing I want to do is hurt my kid, right? Last thing I want to do is to walk through all of that pain and to see all of that. We don't want to do that. But God is helping you and I to face the realities of our life. The lying and all of that stuff. He's like, guys, you got to see it. I knew with Titus he'd forgive me. I knew that he knew that I loved him. I knew that he knew I didn't do it on purpose. I knew that he didn't trust me as much right then, and he didn't. <laughs> After that, he kept kind of eyeing me, you know, <laughs> rightfully so. But it's the same with us and God. God is saying, guys, I want you to deal with your reality, but I want you to know that I love you. But you really need to walk forward and see what your actions have done and the things that you have caused. And to pick the model of who in you and I are, he picks a highly promiscuous person who knowingly turns her back on her three kids and on her husband and walks away in that story. And that's who we are in this story. We're not Hosea. We're all Gomer. We're all the ones that have said, God, I don't care how good you've been to us. I don't care what good you've done. I'm walking away, and I'm going to choose something else. Second thing I want you to recognize, not only is God ridiculously faithful to us that when we weren't faithful, but God deals with us appropriately in our unfaithfulness. If you want to know what it feels like for somebody to have a spouse cheat on them, 
Look at chapter 2. We're not going to read the whole chapter. This is written from the perspective of God. This is like God and, Ho and Israel and Hosea and his wife Gomer are parallel together in this. And here's God speaking in verse 5. Halfway through it, he says this. He says, this is God talking about Israel. This is like the husband and talking about what the wife has done when she runs after other people. And here she speaks. She, he says, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I'm going to go after these people who give to me all these wonderful things, these other men. Therefore, I will hedge up her way. This is God speaking with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She won't know, be able to get out and find them. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she'll say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Here's, here's the picture. Israel was running to all these other countries, Israel was in a time of extreme prosperity. The economy was good. Everything was up. Inflation was down. And Israel was running to these other countries, trading with them. And Israel, in the middle of those relationships, was pursuing their God and was suing their gods, which was known as Baal, a, a fertility god that involved temple prostitutes and all kinds of stuff that we won't get into. But sh the people of Israel were attributing her, their success to those gods. And God is like... Are you kidding me? It's, it's the picture almost of God giving the, one, the men she was running around with, giving them money so that they can in turn to give to her. And she's just blowing off her husband. And, and he's like, I've done all this for you. I can't believe what you're doing. I cannot believe this. He says in verse 9, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I'll take back my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And now I will uncover the lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And we could read more there. We read the, the anger that God has when you and I turn our back on Him. When we live this kind of life of lying and stealing, adultery, swearing. In other words, wishing evil on other people is what that's talking about, like cursing people. God looks at us. He's like, what are you doing? I've given all of this stuff for you. I've blessed you. And you're going to live for some other, by some other code? You're going to live for yourself? You're going to live for some other God besides me? And you're blowing off the fact that I'm the one that's taking care of you with all of this. He says, we're, we're, we're done. I'm, I'm removing all of that. In fact, in the story of Hosea and, and his wife Gomer, after the three kids, she leaves home. We don't know if she takes the kids with her or not. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I wouldn't be surprised if Hosea had the kids. We might today would have said had custody. Um, and she's doing her own thing entirely. And Hosea stops. Don't know if they experienced divorce or not, but at least, obviously, at least separation. And she's estranged from him completely. There's a complete distancing there, and you can read that in chapter 2. When you and I, after having a relationship with Jesus, and when we have surrendered our life to Him and know Him as Lord, 
when you and I begin to live a life of sin again, there's an estrangement in our relationship with God. Are we still God's child? Yes. But there's a distancing there. We're living for somebody else, and it's not God. And God's angry, and God feels towards us the same way as a spouse does when they're cheated on. Um, and God deals with us appropriately according to what we've done wrong in the middle of that. He deals with us, punishes us, holds us accountable, doesn't enable us, but deals with us. And he should because it's a sign of his love for us. It's a sign of his relationship with us. It's a sign that he cares. You know, I, I have neighbors that live all around me. I care about them. I really don't know what's going on in their life. And at some personal level, I don't really care. To some degree, it's not my business. I'm not committed to them. You know, what they're doing in their personal life is their business. My relationship with them is very different than my relationship with my wife, with my own kids, those in my own home. God, when we mess up, He treats us as one of His, not as some distant neighbor, not as somebody that doesn't know what's going on. And when He comes to you and, and, and you begin to feel that estrangement and you begin to feel that, that God speaking and dealing with your sin and with your heart, I want you to actually be encouraged. It means that God loves you. It means that He cares about you, cares about the relationship with you. It's actually not that He's turning His back on you. It's back to the exact opposite. He's loving you enough to come deal with it and to help you to address it so that there can be a restoration in that relationship. Because it can never happen while there's all of that craziness going on. Can't happen. Third thing I want you to recognize. Not only does God deal with us appropriately in our sin when we, have, when we begin to pursue and chase others, all the while saying that He's our God and the one that we're married to, but God restores and renews us phenomenally in the middle of that. Read verse 14, and this is the shocking part to me, the beautiful part. Everybody expects a husband to get angry when they've experienced that. Everybody expects a, a wife to get angry when they experience that. But most of us don't expect what happens next. Look what happens next in verse 14 of chapter 2. This is God talking. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Woo her back. And entice to, to get her attention. Win her heart back. And I'm going to bring her into the wilderness, and I'll speak tenderly to her. You know what God does to you and me when we run around? Yeah, He gets angry. But then He comes at us in a way and He says, I'm going to win them back. I'm going to allure them. I'm going to, I'm going to talk tenderly and gentle to them. He, he goes on, He says, And there in the wilderness, in the desert, picture hot, sand, cactus, rocks, rattlesnakes, in that wilderness. And there I will give her her vineyards, which you don't think of in a wilderness, and I'll make the valley of Achor a door of hope. A little backstory on that. 
Valley of Achor was a place where God judged a man by the name of Achan in the book of Joshua who disobeyed God and stole things that belonged to God. And so the Valley of Achor was a place of shame. It was a history. It was something that Israel had done that was bad, that they all remembered, a place that, oh, you didn't talk about. And what God just told us is, yeah, I know all the history that you have, and I'm going to take even that place that seems shameful to you, and I'm going to bring the shame away from that, and I'm going to make it a place of honor. I'm going to make it a place of, of hope. I'm going to make it a place of, of grace, a place of, of love. And there she shall answer, in verse 15, as in the days of her youth, and as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God says, I'm going to renew you. I'm going to renew and restore Israel just as if before she had done all of this mess and cheated and ran around. I'm going to bring such restoration, such renewal. It's going to be in the desert. It's going to be in the wilderness where there's a time of isolation, a time of removal, a, a time of pulling aside away from everything. God does that. When you and I get into sin, God will pull us out of the the fast lane of life, if you will, and He often will put us in a corner to kind of deal with things a bit. He's not doing it because He doesn't love us. He's doing it because He does love us. And I don't know how God does this, but when He chastises and gets on me, I feel His holiness. I feel His righteousness in my soul, but I feel that alluring. I feel those, those words of saying, Sean, I love you. This is for your good. I care about you. And it's a strange thing. I don't think a parent is able to duplicate that kind of correction and restoration at the level that God does what He does with us. But He, he does that. He takes us into the wilderness. And we feel the pain of that. But it also feels good because God begins dealing with us more tenderly. And He begins working in our life more gingerly. And He woos us back to Himself. And then to kind of bring it full circle, He goes beyond that and He says... Uh, he says, I'm going to betroth you. I'm looking at verse 19. He says, I will betroth you. In other words, I will marry you to me forever. I will betroth you to me, listen to this, in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. What God is saying is, is look, even though you're going out and you're doing all of this after we've been married, I'm going to renew my vows to you. And instead of this now being a marriage or a relationship where you have failed and, and dishonored and unfaithfulness and all of that, I'm going to bring to the table. And what I'm bringing to the table is mercy, is faithfulness, unending love, righteousness. I'm going to make you a righteous person. Your relationship to me is going to overcome all of that. Think about it this way. When you, when you and I sin, we turn, we're, we're bad. Make it really simple terms. We're bad. God is always good. In any time in this world where good and bad meet, bad is the one that always wins out. Think like scientifically, medically. So if you've got you know, something that's pure and sterile, it gets contaminated with the germs and the bad. Which one wins in that world? The bad wins. 
So instead of when God marries to us, instead of us turning God bad, God actually comes to us and he purifies us and he makes our relationship holy and he removes the stigma of our past and all of our unfaithfulness and he joins himself to us and he covers all of that in complete righteousness, complete faithfulness and mercy, no threat, nothing hanging over our head. A spouse, when they have, have been unfaithful to their spouse, um, their husband or their wife, doesn't matter either way, and they, they genuinely love and care for them, they carry such guilt and shame for months and years. And what this verse is saying is, is that God comes and removes all of that and makes it as if we never had before. And he puts us in that renewed relationship and he fully commits himself to us, which is absolutely astounding. That God renews, the God of heaven cares enough to do that. The last thing I want you to recognize and realize, and this is for the earthly side of things. When you, and I'm talking to husbands and wives, those of you who will be husbands and wives, this whole picture, I want you to know that when you in this earthly relationship have someone who's been unfaithful to you, or maybe somebody, your spouse has hurt you deeply, maybe it's not in this kind of unfaithfulness, but it's in something different. Maybe they betrayed you or did something really painful, horrible to you. I want you to realize that love and forgiveness are absolutely possible. To bring this whole picture home, here's what God tells Hosea to do. He says, now, Hosea, that you're living my life, this is what I've experienced. Your wife has gone out and she has committed adultery and all of these things. I want you to now to stand in my shoes and I want you to go back and I want you to take her back to you and to love her again. Look what chapter 3, verse 1 says. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, not has been, but is. And here's the way to do it. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, love the benefits of those adulterous situations, we might say. So he goes and he does that. And he says in verse 3, And I said to her, this is now Hosea talking to, to his wife, I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. And here's what's amazing. And so I will be to you. Husband and wives, you guys, all of us in relationships go through difficult things. And sometimes you wonder if you really can love and be committed and forgive. And what we just read is God said, Hosea, this is a command. This is not an option. This is not a feeling. I want you to go and take that woman back and I want you to love her. I don't want you to be committed to her. You see, it was a choice that Hosea needed to make. Now, there were some conditions in that. He went to his wife and said, look, I'm going to be a husband to you, but you're going to stop running around. <laughs> Drawing lines in the sands, you're done, lady, with anybody else but me. And he was able to genuinely love her again and to genuinely forgive her 
and genuinely walk in that renewed relationship where the past was absolutely the past. Sean, how is that possible? It's not apart from the grace and goodness of God. It's not apart from God's forgiveness operating in your heart and you taking the position that, that God takes. It's not without you when you've been offended and if it's all the way to your spouse cheating on you, where you have to say, it's not my job to make them pay. I'm not God. It's actually your job to say, Jesus already paid for their sin. You see, we have to not only accept Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, but we actually have to recognize that Jesus died on the cross for the people's sins in our lives that we love. That debt's already been paid. Why in the world are we trying to exact payment on something that God already says it is paid in full? So you have to work through those things and think through those things, but you have to make a decision. And in time, the feelings follow. Feelings always follow thoughts. Always. Thoughts come first. Come even before actions. But it is absolutely possible to love and forgive, to walk in that renewed, restored relationship. Is it easy? No. I think it takes probably a year or two to walk that journey after those kinds of levels of pain. But it's absolutely possible with the grace and goodness of a holy God in heaven. And that's what God has done in your life and in my life. He's taken us back when we've done everything to not deserve it. But he says, now look, no more messing around. I want you to love and serve and follow me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. I want you to follow me, love me. I'm enough. Don't pursue uh, money and wealth. That's what the Jews were pursuing. It's kind of what we're pursuing in suburban America, right? Money and wealth and all of that. All of the sins we talked about, the swearing at other people and the lying and the stealing and the cheating, all of that was just people conniving to get their, their way in the world. Sounds a lot like today. God says, stop. You're not acting as my kid, my child, my wife. Pursue and only follow me. So I don't know how this is hitting you guys this morning. There's a couple of different tracks and directions in here. But the goodness and graciousness of God is so unbelievable and so overwhelming. I want to challenge you to let God work in your heart deeply with the things that he's trying to address, the things that are inside there. Don't run from them. Instead, run to them, but allow them to be a gateway into the graciousness and the glory and the love of God in your soul. But know this, that just like Hosea with, with his wife, God says, stop, no more. Remember the woman that Jesus were brought, was brought before Jesus, these men had accused her. We caught this woman in adultery in the very act. And, and the Bible says that he said, let, let those of you who are without sin throw the first stone. And they were ready to stone her, and they wanted to make Jesus culpable and vindictive and judgmental. And one by one, they dropped their stones and walked away. And Jesus looked at the woman and said, where'd they all go? And she said, they left. And he said, well, neither do I condemn you. But then he tells her this, go and don't do it anymore. Stop sinning. Stop, stop living your life your way. Stop, start instead pursuing me, is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying to you and me the exact same thing. So I'm going to pray. Our worship team's going to come up. 
And I challenge you this morning to whatever God is whispering in your heart, tough subjects for many of us, but I want you to respond to God and let God do what God needs to do in your heart. So pray with me. Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus, that his grace truly is enough. Thank you that you forgive, that Jesus died to pay for all of our sins. Lord, help us to not only accept that for ourselves, but to accept that for those that we love who've harmed us. Help us to realize, Father, that what we've done to you is every bit as bad as that. And help us as we know that grace and that forgiveness in our own heart. Help us out of that overflow to forgive and have grace towards those who have wronged us deeply. Lord, I pray for those who are maybe caught in the middle of sin and they're still pursuing others. I pray, Father, that you would woo them, convict them, and I pray that you would bring them out of that. Lord, I pray for your deliverance in their heart and their soul. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Rivercast, brought to you by River of Life Church in Gilderland, New York. Visit us on Sundays at 10 a.m. or online at riveralbany.com.